0: This week on the Q&A podcast, an interview with
1: best-selling author Eric Larson. He talks about his bestselling book, In the Garden of Beasts, the research into the characters, and his writing process. This interview is from 2011. My name is Paul, and I've been part of the editorial team at C-SPAN for many years. We're dedicated to bringing you unfiltered public affairs coverage from Washington and around the country that respects your ability to watch or listen and think for yourself. Your financial support will help ensure that C-SPAN can continue that effort as people migrate to new platforms for news and information. Please consider supporting C-SPAN's nonprofit operations with a tax-deductible donation today. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Eric Larson, author of In the Garden of Beasts, I want to show you a picture and get your immediate reaction. Hitler,
0: <laughs> Hitler in, in practicing for one of, his, uh, one of his amazing speeches. It's in
1: your book. Why?
0: I have that in a, at, at the start of one segment. I, uh, and first of all, I have very few photographs, um, and we can talk about why. But I have that at a particular place in the book because it signals what's coming next. The madness is, is intensifying at this point.
1: What did you learn about Mr. Hitler you didn't know before you started your book? What I didn't, it's not so much
0: what I learned, well, I learned that his favorite movie was King Kong. I hadn't known that. Um, uh, It's not so much what I learned about Hitler that I didn't know before. It's what I learned about what people thought of Hitler in these early days that really I found very striking. What do you see there? Uh, I see Hitler and his his one-time friend and and ally, slash thug, Captain Ernst Romm, um, in a moment of, uh, of really kind of, um, it's hard to describe their, 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 their looks, and the reason I included that in the book was because it just somehow captured their kind of malignant thuggishness.
1: What about Ernest Rahm?
0: Yeah, he was, uh, he was uh, um, Hitler's uh, friend and, and enforcer essentially at the beginning of their rise to, to power. He was, the, uh, he was the chief of the stormtroopers, a million man plus uh, paramilitary force. Um, and when, um, when Hitler needed something something done, there was Captain Rahm to, to coerce those who were, were resistant to getting it done.
1: What's the time frame of your book?
0: Uh, most of the action takes place in 1933-34, so very early days, um, after the time uh, when Hitler was appointed chancellor um, uh, and including the point where he becomes the absolute leader, the Fuhrer of Germany in uh, the summer of 1934.
1: There are three things I want to ask you about in the book uh, to, to define them. There's the SA, the SS, and the Gestapo. Yeah, yeah. How do they differ? Okay,
0: the, the, the SA, um, that is the uh, shorthand. Those are the stormtroopers. Those are the folks uh, who are commanded by Captain Ernst Ruhm. The SS, uh, technically the SS was part of the SA, but not really. It was a very, um, very elite group of, of men who were supposed to be, um, well, initially Hitler's uh, select guard. Um, the Gestapo, a different entity entirely. In 1933, the Gestapo was founded um, to become to be a, a, a secret police agency to keep tabs on political
1: opposition and so forth. Brand new as of April 1933. Here's a photograph of a man named William Dodds. Who is he in your book? Yeah, William E. Dodd um, was um, uh, uh,
0: the became the America's first ambassador to Nazi Germany. Um, prior to that, he was a professor of history at the University of Chicago, mild-mannered guy. Um, this, this photograph uh, actually became the subject of some mirth in the State Department where, where people, um, uh, senior, senior men, were not really very pleased that Roosevelt went directly and, and hired, uh, hired Dodd to this position. This photograph shows Dodd dwarfed by a, a tapestry behind him and by his desk. And those who were his opponents in Washington felt it was really kind of a funny
1: photograph. This is a picture of his daughter, uh, Martha, her role in your book. Yeah, that's not her best
0: shot, I have to say. But there's a glam shot in my book. We have another one that we're going to show. Yeah, the one in the book. Yeah, uh, Martha was his his daughter. And the reason that I found her, yeah, there she is, uh, in in her glory. Um, The reason I... I, I, uh, Half the reason I did this book is is Martha, um, because when she arrived in Berlin with the family, um, she um, she was in love with what she referred to as the Nazi revolution. She was enthralled by the Nazis, um, which is, really struck me as a completely surprising thing, given, given what we all know, hindsight. I mean, how could you actually be enthralled with the Nazi revolution? But there she was. And that was not an unusual position for somebody
1: to have. Go back to William Dodd, who was professor at the University of Chicago in 1933, you said that he was the first ambassador to the Nazi regime. Yes. How did Hitler become chancellor and then the ultimate Fuhrer of the country?
0: Yeah, Hitler, interestingly, um, and and I guess I didn't really know this um, before I went into this book, but. But Hitler was appointed chancellor um, in early, in, early in 1933 in essentially a deal, a political deal. Um, those who, who engineered this deal felt that they could control him and were obviously proven, proven wrong. He became the, um, the he, he didn't possess all powers initially. He was chancellor. Uh, President Hindenburg had, uh, had ultimate say over whether the government would survive or, or, or not. But in the following August of 1934, when Hindenburg died, it was then that Hitler engineered not really a coup, but essentially seized, through various machinations, seized the powers that Hindenburg had had and became the absolute ruler of of Germany.
1: We have a photograph of William Dodd and his wife, Maddie. How, what role did she play in this story?
0: yeah maddie uh, uh you know obviously she she's william william e dodd's um, wife um, she she was in in my book she actually is kind of takes kind of a a, a background position mainly because sadly enough there's is not a lot of material out there about her she's kind of a stabilizing force in the family a very very charming soft spoken um, southern southern woman um, who finds herself um, in the midst of this, this cauldron of 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 the, the Nazi regime and found herself really she really disliked a lot of the a lot of the Nazis, but also curiously liked others. I mean, liked, for example, um, she was the hostess of the family, of course. And one of the senior officials, um, the head of the Reichsbank, um, uh, she loved uh, having him come to parties, because he, he was always willing to fill an empty seat at the table if somebody canceled out on a dinner party or something. So, so she liked some of the higher ups, um, but she was just really unhappy with, with, the, with all the trappings and the, the kind of malevolence
1: of the, the Nazi regime. You wrote on a blog that you have uh, that anybody can look at. And uh, what did you, when did you start that? Anybody who wants to spend a nice, boring
0: afternoon, they can feel free to check my blog.
1: <laughs> when did you start the blog? Because you said in, in one of your blog posts that you were late to the game.
0: I was very late to the game. I started, this, I started my website, uh, launched my website in January of this year. And I started it because I felt that you know, I wanted to communicate information about this book as, as its launch approached. And also um, because I wanted, to, um, I wanted people to know that I'd written more than one book. <laughs>
1: early in July you, you, you wrote this once again I'm stranded in the quote dark country of no ideas unquote as a friend of mine once described it that place that place where I end up uh, after completing a book I, I want you to go back to the dark place before this book yeah, yeah where was that dark place and how did you get out of it yeah yeah well a, a,
0: let me just explain first what that means I mean w- whenever I finish a book and I, and I, I don't know why this is the case but Whenever I finish the book, I, 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 have, I do not have a backlog of ideas to immediately go to. It's, it's like all the other ideas that I ever entertained have disappeared. I start with a, with a, with a blank slate. I don't know why that is. Um, for a lot of writers, that is not the case. Um, and it is kind of, for me, a very hard place to be, because I want to feel productive. And yet, I have nothing to really work on. It's, 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 merely a, it's a process at that point of putting myself in the way of luck, trying to find this next book idea. So this goes back to probably five or six years ago, not to say that I've been working on this for five or six years. This book took probably about four years altogether. But about five or six years ago, after completing my previous book, Thunderstruck, I was again in this dark country. I was trying to think of something to, to work on. And really, just to jumpstart my thinking, um, I went to a bookstore in Seattle, where I live, and just started browsing the history section. and. Just kind of seeing what covers of books would appeal to me, um, what covers were, were sort of an immediate turnoff to me, what bored me, just just to kind of get my mind thinking in different channels. And I came across a book face out in the shelf um, that I had always meant to read, 1,200 pages, tiny print, kind of intimidating, no photographs. And uh, it was William Shearer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Decided I had nothing better to do, took the book home, started reading, loved it, But what really lit my imagination was the fact that Scheer, the the author, had actually been there in Berlin in these early days. He came in 1934, had met these characters we know today to be icons of evil, Hitler, Goebbels, Goering, all these people in, in social context as well as formal context. And what occurred to me then is what would that have been like to have met these people when you didn't know the ending, when you didn't know what was coming down the pike? How would you have appraised them? How would you have, have, have viewed them at that time? I started thinking about that more and more. It, it, I went to try on some other book ideas, but I kept coming back to this idea, wouldn't that be interesting? So I started looking for characters through whose eyes I could tell that story, ideally outsiders, ideally Americans. Um, and that's when I stumbled upon uh, William E. Dodd, the, the uh, first ambassador to Nazi Germany, and his daughter. Where did you stumble on him? upon him? Yeah, Dodd. Uh, Dodd. I, I started reading. I started reading all uh, as many personal memoirs and diaries from that era as I as I could, and at some point came across William E. Dodd's diary, published diary, and um, read that. And I liked. I liked it very much. I liked. I liked Dodd as as an individual. I liked his story. The fact that out of the blue he became. The ambassador to to Nazi Germany, when really there was no good reason for him to be an ambassador. He had no diplomatic training, nothing. So I really liked that, um, but I wasn't I wasn't so enamored of him at that point that I, I wanted to hang an entire book on him. It was when I stumbled across um, his daughter's memoir, which is you know probably a, soon after that. That was when I realized, yeah, these might be my, my characters. These might be the people I want to follow into Nazi Germany because they, they both have had such different orientations at first, but they both undergo what I see as very compelling personal transformations. And as you know, you know, I mean in, in, in fiction, you, you can't write a good novel without having a character be transformed in one way or another in nonfiction, since you have to go with what you've got. It is, it is relatively rare to find people, let alone two people in the same family, who undergo
1: a very satisfying real-life transformation. You're still in that dark uh, spot of uh, looking for ideas <coughs> right now for the next one. Now that this
0: book is done, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the, for the next, and, and um, I've killed off
1: a couple of ideas thus far, so. How many affairs did Martha have That you could find, and why was it? How could you? Why were you able to find all these affairs?
0: (laughs) First of all, I don't. I don't know how many affairs she she ultimately had. Um, I I can talk about uh, some of the the key affairs, and she had. She had quite a few affairs. She was. She was. was, Well, addressing first the the how how does one know? First of all, she tells us. she tells us in her, her memoir and in her papers at the library of congress she makes a lot of reference to <coughs> a lot of reference to to the people she knew and and uh, and and, and, and it became involved in affairs with um, she was one of these people who you know we we all have met them and we've probably all to some extent disliked them because we want to be like them she's one of these people who had immense personal charm the opposite sex. You go through her early papers, you find even, even when she was in what would have been late high school, early college, she was courted by people who ordinarily would be
1: courting older and maybe more sophisticated women. I mean she was she just had that thing. Let me interrupt just to show a picture of Carl Sandberg, because you learn early in your book that she did she have an affair with him? She had an affair with him. Um, and in fact, one of the,
0: <laughs> one of the delights of, my, uh, of the research process, and, and I, I always do my own research, and, and in large part, that's because of, of moments I'm about to, to, to describe. I was going through Martha's papers uh, at the Library of Congress, and she has, I believe the total is 70 linear feet of documents at the Library of Congress, um, and in one file, as I was going through all, all of her, her papers, I came across, um, in, a, in a clear plastic archival envelope, I came across two locks of Carl Sandburg's hair tied each at one end with the thick, the old like black coat thread. Um, and I just found that absolutely charming. There they were, two locks of Carl Sandburg's hair. And I can, I can report that his hair really was quite, quite blonde and actually, actually quite coarse as well. And you put
1: it on your blog, but you didn't put it in the book. Well, I, I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned his, his his locks somewhere. I'm talking about the photograph. I mean, you didn't, the photograph is not in your book. but and, yeah. and let me just stop you there to also ask you, you made a comment earlier about the decision on what photographs to run and what yes. not to run. We showed a, a, an earlier photo, say, of Martha, but right. you didn't put that one in the book. I didn't put that in the book because, well, for a
0: couple of reasons. Um, I, I wanted to have... I wanted to have her her more glamorous image in the book because I think that more, more captures how she came off to the people she encountered in real life. You know, with photographs, with photographs, it's it's very hard. You could see the one photograph of Martha and find yourself thinking, "This woman was attractive. She had all these affairs. What was this?" What like was this happening? one right here. <laughs> well, yes, right. Um, but uh, uh, she was. Um, I I think the glamorous photograph really sort of captured better the sense of of what people saw who who encountered her on a daily basis in in Berlin in that period. But
1: what about your, uh, I mean, we're going to show some photographs that aren't in here, but what was your overall philosophy of what to run and what not to run?
0: I have a very sort of uh, um, peculiar view of photographs in books. Frankly, if it were entirely up to me, I would have no photographs in the book whatsoever. Because it is my goal, as um, well, strange as this may sound, it is not necessarily my goal to inform. Um, it is my goal to create a historical experience with my books. My dream, my ideal is that someone picks up a book of mine, starts reading it, and just lets m- themselves sink into the past and then read the thing straight through and emerge at the end, feeling as though they've lived in another, in another world entirely. Photographs, as valuable as they can be, are a distraction, um, I think, for, for in, in the reading process, if you will. If you have you know 10 photographs stuck in what they refer to as a signature at the heart of a book, to me it is like having a lighthouse in the fog. You want to turn back to those, those pages and that signature every time you come across a passage involving somebody you want to kind of find out about because of that, because because I don't want a signature in the book, because the marketing folk at publishing companies insist on photographs, I've come to what I consider to be a happy medium. And that is, at the start of each major section of the book, that is what I refer to as a part, part one, part two, part three, that's where you'll find a photograph. And that photograph does work. It's not just stuck in there. It does work. It tells you something about what's coming next in that part, it ideally propels you into it. Also, you come across the photograph in the course of your reading. It's not like you can find that photograph readily. You can't thumb back to it. You come to it, you acknowledge it, you see it, you read it for what it, take the meaning of it, and then you move on. And then the, the next part, similar thing happens and you, you're
1: propelled forward. So that's, that's
0: my philosophy.
1: Here is a photograph that's not in the book also of another one of her affairs, Thornton Wilder. Yeah. Now Thornton Wilder, I, I don't think she had an affair
0: with him. I think even at this point, he was he had pretty much declared his interest in another another direction. They were very good friends. They were very good friends. In fact, uh, in fact, she carried a picture of him in uh, a locket. Um, and what is remarkable though is that she managed to have these friendships, which with such potent literary figures in that time, which also speaks to her, her compelling character. Who else? Well, Carl Sandburg.
1: But she also had. Thomas Wolfe, was that an Thomas
0: affair? Thomas Wolfe, oh, Thomas Wolfe, of course. Thomas Wolf, Her affair with Thomas Wolfe occurs pretty much after the action in the book. 1933 four is when the book is centered. Um, he comes into the picture fairly late in the program. But they had a really quite a hot and heavy affair, um, actually. Um, and uh, he was a frequent visitor to the embassy. Um, who knows? Who knows how she, she was able to do it? But uh, there, too, it was uh, clearly a physical affair.
1: Well, I read that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to play uh, Doctor Holmes from uh, your book of uh, *Devil in the White City*, which came out uh, what was it about eight eight years ago? Doesn't seem like that, but yes. Yeah, I mean that that was the last time you were here. Um, and then as I read this book, Martha stuck right out as a possible future movie yeah, person yeah. Uh, who would play it. Scarlett Johansson, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> you
0: know, or or. Um, no, nah, it's hard hard to speculate, but it would be. It, I think it could make a very interesting movie. Actually, I think it'd be a better miniseries, frankly. Sort of a sort of a dark upstairs downstairs.
1: How many of your books have been made into movies? Uh, none as yet, but a lot of them have been optioned, but none none made into movies yet. Isaac Storm, mm, not yet. How big a seller was that compared to say Devil in the White City? Uh, it was a huge seller, but Devil in the White City uh, pretty much dwarfed it in terms of sales. Did I read two point three million at least? Yeah yeah, for More. Devil in the White City, yeah. and do you fight this as you write books that are do they all go back to this is not Devil in the White City? you mean do i do I have to deal with the pressure of having had a book like yeah. Devil in the White City? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. and thank you for mentioning it. But, but, yes. what, <laughs> what kind of but but you're in that unusual position that no matter what book is sold, you get something from but the, it. but but the thing is the thing is, you know I. Having had successful
0: books puts you in a position where, yes, almost anything I propose would be taken seriously, but there's a danger there. So really, all the pressure is on me to, 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 to come up with a winning idea that I feel passion — well, passion is a, is a strange word — that I feel sufficiently compelling to spend the next four years or more with, but also I have to be very much aware that there is an inclination to acquire whatever idea I put forward. So the pressure is entirely on me to come up with something that I can live with in that, in that time. Do I feel, do I, does, is it daunting to try to feel like I have to do as well or better
1: with the next book as I did with, with Devil in the White City? Yes. Yes. It's huge pressure. Let's go back to the book and show some more photographs and tell us who this man is right here. Ah uh, yes, this is one of my favorite characters in the book. This is this is
0: Rudolf Diels. Rudolf Diels, who was the very first chief of the Gestapo. The Gestapo was formed in April of nineteen thirty-three. Um, I have to emphasize first because um, uh, Diels lasted in that job for one year and was replaced by Himmler, who brought in his protege Reinhard Heydrich, and then the game changed completely they were as thoroughly evil as 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 any human being could be Rudolf Diels was he he to me really embodies the complexity and nuance of this period which is really the message of this book was how complex how complex this era was how hard to divine what was coming down the pike and how easy in, in other ways but how hard it seemed to to really piece what the what the, what the future was going to be because of what was happening in 1933 34, He embodies this complexity, this, this sense of nuance, because um, A, he was not a member of the Nazi party. Um, he was um, viewed by Dodd and by other diplomats in Berlin as one of the best men of the Nazi regime. Um, he was the man you went to if you wanted to extract a foreign national of yours from Dachau, let's say, which at the, this time, by the way, was, a, was not a camp for, for Jews. It was a camp for political opponents. Um, and Diels, Diels was also a very, he was a very romantic figure. He was very handsome, at least from the, the cheekbones up. Um, from the cheekbones down, as the photograph showed, he was pretty heavily scarred. And this was from a practice um, common among students of when he was a young man, common of young men of his generation called bare-blade dueling, where they would fight with actual swords, sharp swords, the point being to so mark your opponent that you became the victor, and everybody would be sewed up and presumably sent off to class. I mean, It was purely meant to demonstrate one's, one's courage and one's, one's manhood. So here's deals horribly scarred from the cheekbones down, very handsome, though, to women. Martha was really taken with him, obviously, um, and they became involved in a, what appears also to have been a, a physical affair.
1: How early in their arrival over there in 1933? You know, the exact date, um, You know when they, when they
0: first became an item, if you will, is, is not known, at least not to any extent that I could find. But it was pretty obvious that by the fall of 1933 they were
1: involved. Just to complicate things, I don't think we can find a picture of Boris. You have Rudolf deals over here from the running the Gestapo, right. and then who's Boris and what's the relationship to? Uh, yeah, Martha. Boris is another one of the
0: characters that I found I found very compelling. Boris Vinogradov, um, when Martha meets him, uh, and this happens a little after she's become involved with with uh, with Rudolf Diels. She, by the way, was not opposed to seeing numerous men at the same time. She was uh, really kind of far ahead of the her time, I guess, in that respect. Um, Boris um, was a tall 6'4", I think, if I recall correctly, 6'4", very handsome Russian, very charming. She meets him. Um, he meets she meets him at a party, and, and as far as anybody can tell, it seemed to be love at first sight for for both of them. Uh, they become involved in a, a, a very um, a very important love affair for her. One of the she would describe it later as one of the three great loves of of her life. When she becomes involved with Boris, however, she appears not to recognize something that that everybody else in Berlin seems to know, <laughs> and that is that that it's very likely that Boris is an operative, or at least in, in some way, allied with the Soviet intelligence apparatus, the NKVD, precursor to the KGB. Um, and uh, eventually this becomes a very important part of the story.
1: There's so many names and so many connections and all that. Um, when you went after this story, where did you go? Did you go to Germany? Did yes. you, I mean, where, places like, how did you, how did you educate yourself and you were a Russian major, as I remember. in Russian and, Russian and Russian history, yeah. yeah. So you hadn't touched the, the German history part of this? Uh, no, no. This was, all, this was all new to
0: me. Um, well, you know, when you study history, when you study European history, you know some of it. And, in fact, I was, before I started this, I was a victim. Well, victim is a strong word. But I think, I think most of us tend to view this period 1933 to 1945 as one homogeneous block of horror and holocaust. right? And what really surprised me is how, how many distinct phases and how things evolved from this 33-34 period onward. Um, it was, I just found that this education was, to me, terrifically interesting and I, and I just I just went about it the way one would do anything of this kind you start at the outside you start with the tertiary works the great the great works of scholarship um, and and let me say right here that that you know I wrote this book about this one very narrow um, but very important period um, through the eyes of these two Americans I am not a Hitler scholar I am not the go-to guy on 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 the history of World War II and so forth. But there are some some scholars who have written tremendous works, I mean, Sir Ian Kirshaw, um, Richard Evans, and some of the old classics, uh, Alan Bullock's Hitler, A Study in Tyranny, um, Shearer's books, Berlin Diary, um, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and so forth. You start with those and start kind of getting a feel for, for the territory and start working in. And and then you start looking at at memoirs, personal memoirs and things like that, not just of my principals, Dodd and and Martha, but of the people they knew uh, and who knew them and who make references to them and their their works. And then the fun stuff starts, and that's when you go plunging into the archives, like the, the Library of Congress, the National Archives. One real surprise to me was how valuable an archive in Madison, Wisconsin became for me on this subject. Um, at the Wisconsin Historical Society um, Archive on the campus of the University of Wisconsin. I found there some wonderful materials um, uh, about and by people who knew and were friends with the Dodds in Berlin, and that kind of thing is absolutely invaluable when you get somebody else telling you about the, the, the key actors in your, in your, in your book. And that was Madison, Wisconsin, of all places.
1: Uh, again, you go back to 1933, uh, connect all these dots. You have Dodd in the American Embassy in Germany. Hitler's the chancellor, but not the top dog yet. Not the top dog yet. Pretty close to top dog, but not totally. Back in the United States, you have FDR in the White House, right. and then you have the State Department. What's right. the pretty good club? Pretty good club is a term that um, one diplomat, Hugh
0: Wilson, the man actually who, who who eventually replaced Dodd in Berlin, he came up with to describe to describe the diplomatic corps, the foreign service, um, the nature of it. That it was very um, it was very clubby. It to, the typical ambassador was very wealthy. Typical foreign service senior guy was typically wealthy. Had gone to all the right schools, Harvard, Princeton, so forth they all kind of came from the same world they knew each other many were um many were independently wealthy most ambassadors in fact uh, prior to Dodd were independently wealthy um and um there was this this the, the club idea extends even to the fact that um if you weren't of that class of that character of, of person, you were an outsider. And Dodd was very much an outsider. He did not go to those schools. He did not have independent wealth. And this became a, a, a serious source of, of initially low-grade and then later, ultimately,
1: career-ending conflict within the State Department between the Pretty Good Club and Dodd. Well, you paint a picture of the Dodd sitting in Germany Relating to FDR, who's his friend, and to the State Department, and the State Department constantly undermining him as he tells FDR, We got problems here. Well, yeah. Uh, what,
0: what, FDR's MO um, uh, in terms of appointments was often to, to make a direct appointment himself underneath um, without consulting much. The person who was in charge of whatever department he was appointing somebody to. So in the case of the State Department, we had Secretary of State Cordell Hull, but it was Roosevelt who appointed Dodd to be ambassador to Germany without consulting Hull, without him having really much say at all. So Dodd had this connection, this direct connection to Roosevelt. and Dodd would write handwritten letters to Roosevelt telling him the real situation in Germany. And yet below that, you had, you had three senior guys uh, in particular um, in the State Department who, who it's not so much that they, 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 they weren't paying attention. It's not so much that they, they didn't accept what Dodd was telling the world, well, was, was telling Roosevelt and them quietly, it's almost as though they felt that, um, that Germany was kind of a, more an irritant than the important center it would become even in just a year's time. Uh, so that was, it, was very, it was very interesting. The lines of conflict and, 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 and force within the State Department vis-à-vis Dodd. Was, I, I was really startled by that, actually.
1: I want to show some more photographs of Germans uh, well known in this country. Joseph Goebbels. Yeah, yeah, um, the head of
0: the, uh, uh, the Ministry of uh, Public Enlightenment, the propaganda chief of, of, uh, of the Reich. Interestingly, in 3334, um Goebbels was uh, a coveted party guest. He was a coveted guest at, at diplomatic functions because he had a great sense of humor or was perceived to have a great sense of humor, a vicious sense of humor. But I found that really Intriguing. Startling, actually.
1: Could, could, these, did you, could you learn in all this whether they could speak English?
0: You know, I never tried to learn that. Um, they, I, I believe some did speak English. Hitler never spoke English um, uh, and made it a point of speaking, of speaking German. Dodd spoke German quite well.
1: Martha? Martha, halting, but she learned quite a bit of German as she went along. Heinrich Himmler, next. Yep. What about him? What did? Uh, by the way, the, the, these three in a row all committed suicide, all with cyanide at the end of the war, or somewhere in the process after the Nuremberg trials. But, Mr. Himmler. Yeah, Himmler, um,
0: uh, former chicken farmer who became who uh, became a senior police official in, uh, in Munich, had ambitions to, uh, to to run all the secret police operations throughout. Uh, Throughout uh, Germany, ultimately replaced Deals as head of the Gestapo or as head of the the entire apparatus that included the Gestapo.
1: Um, thoroughly, um, thoroughly mundane human being, thoroughly evil, human being. What evidence did I mean? I know this is a silly question, but what evidence? How did you find out how evil he was? Well, uh, history tells us
0: that. I mean, during this period, during this
1: period, the interesting thing is
0: that you you would. No one knew exactly how awful this guy was going to be, so one has to be very careful. I, in in my book, Himmler plays a fairly, fairly mild, um, fairly minimal role, only because he doesn't take prominence until after, in Berlin, until after, uh, let's say, March of 1934. Um, But you know, Himmler, the 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 Gestapo after that, the uh, the role in the Holocaust. I mean, that's all. Known and, and, and obvious at this time, however, he was just considered to be sort of a rather rather mundane individual. You know, always the same kind of bland appearance. Looked like a schoolteacher more than a more than a uh, you know the, the the this evil police agent. Goring on the screen. Yeah, Goring was um, he was uh, he was very large, fat. Um, he was a former World War I flying ace, he, uh, was said to have had tremendous courage. The time the Dodds arrived, Goering is um, considered one of the better men also of the regime, that is to say um, uh, at the it's more of a relative thing at that point, relative to Hitler, relative to, to Goebbels, people could stand Goering much, uh, much more readily. Um, Dodd found him to be um, fairly reasonable, rational at first. Although Garibaldi, I mean, Goering, um, garing was it seemed at heart to be kind of a, a flamboyant nine-year-old boy who happened to have a lot of power. <laughs> you know, he was a very strange character. Um, there's a there's a there's a charming moment, I think, when um, when Mrs. Dodd, Martha's mother, um, is at a uh, a function at the Italian embassy. It's a concert. And there are all these little gilt chairs set out in the room for people to, to sit in to listen to this concert. Goering, again, who's quite large, um, sits in the chair directly in front of her and just absolutely overwhelmed the chair. And she spent her time at that concert um, terrified that his chair would break and Goering would come collapsing into her lap. <laughs> this was kind, of kind of a nice little moment. Uh, Putzi if that's the yeah. way you pronounce it. Yeah. Ernst Sedgwick Hamstengel, nicknamed Putzi. Very compelling character. Total surprise to me. Um, uh, I, I had not known of his existence until uh, until I started the work on this book. He is, um, he is, a, he's, he, he's a giant. He's, 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 he's well over six feet tall. He, too, weighs a lot, but it's because he's just so tall. Um, an overwhelming personality. He was also a very talented piano player, talented in a sense. He, he had a, 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 a broad repertoire, but he played with a certain kind of vehemence that, that may have probably meant that he wasn't all that, you wouldn't want to hear a concert necessarily by, by Puzzi. But he um, he played uh, piano at night for, uh, for Hitler, late at night, was reputed to play late at night. To, kind of help Hitler um, calm his, his nerves at the end of a, of a long day, and Hitler would, would listen to him play and perhaps even weep at times when, by the passion that, that, that Putsey was putting into the, into the music. One interesting note about Putsey is that um, his mother was American. He was a Harvard graduate himself, but not a member of the Pretty Good Club in, in any sense of the term.
1: What was the story about Martha and Hitler? And the, somebody yeah. attempted to Well, that was Putsy.
0: That was um, uh He, he, he had some, some pretty wild ideas. And, and at one point, according to Martha's memoir, Putsey calls her up and he says, you know, I think, I think that, that Hitler would be a much better human being, a much more moderate individual, if he, if he simply had a good woman in his life. And he tells her in this phone call, he says, Martha, you are that woman. And then he arranges this very strange encounter at the Kaiserhof, which is one of the places that, that Hitler liked to, to hang out. Uh, Putzi orchestrates this meeting. Um, he has, he has um, Martha uh, a, a, and, and him, himself sitting at one table. Hitler comes in, uh, takes a seat at another table. Putzi arranges a, a meeting between the two of them. Hitler kisses Martha's hand at least twice, apparently, during this encounter. She sees him up close for the first time, judges him to be a very ordinary seeming man with a certain boyish charm. But what she's most struck by is, as others have reported as well, is, is his eyes. They have this, this almost hypnotic quality that she, when they make contact. Nothing comes of the meeting. Obviously, she does not have an affair with Hitler. It's just
1: that one moment and then it's over. Go back to uh, the beginning in '33. Um, did I do I remember that Martha was 24? Mm-hmm. How old was her father?
0: See, so he Dodd at this point was I believe 63 or 4 when they first arrived in 1933. How long does he live, by
1: the way, in, in the very end? He died uh, in
0: 1930. 19- Thirty. What is it? Nine. Thirty-nine. Before before the war actually broke out, in, uh, in before America actually became involved in the war, and he died actually of um, of a neurological um, uh, problem that, as best anybody can tell, was made much worse by his his distress of of his time in Berlin.
1: I know I'm jumping way ahead, but there's a picture in the book of a golf course, yeah, down here in Virginia, yeah. and I guess you took it.
0: Yeah, I took it, yeah, yeah. I've traveled out there to the Lake, um, which is the site of Dodd's, uh, Dodd's old farm. Dodd was, uh, fancied himself a, 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 a Jeffersonian Democrat to the core. He, he believed in yeoman farming values. And, uh, and he owned this farm, um, Round Hill, Virginia, that he just adored. He loved spending time on this farm. Uh, every summer, he would go and, and essentially pretend that he was a farmer. You know, he ran it as, as a working farm. And then, after his death, at some point, um, the family sold uh, the property, and it became,
1: uh, ironically, this uh, this uh, quite quite nice golf course. You point out Martha was married early. Yes, yes. For how long, and what happened to that marriage? Very brief marriage
0: to a to a uh, to a New York banker, and, and I should note that she was married to this to this guy um, after breaking two previous engagements. So. At the age of 24, she has already been around the block numerous times. I mean, she had broken two engagements. She had the, an affair with Carl Sandburg. She had had other love affairs with other, other younger younger men. Um, and she had gotten married um, to this New York banker and had kept this marriage a secret, actually, from her friends. The only people who knew about this marriage were, of course, the husband and the family and the families involved. but right there there's there's evidence that there was a problem to begin with and sure enough soon soon that marriage began to fall apart um, divorce proceedings were instituted so by the time she arrived in Berlin at twenty four she was in the midst of, of a divorce and was probably because of because of that feeling even more free um, once she got there dies in Prague years and years later dies in Prague years and years later yeah very I, so I, think, I think the story is actually a tragic one for both Dodd and his daughter. Um, in, Martha's case, um, in Martha's case, in Martha's case, in this first year, 1933-34, uh, and again, that's when most of the action in the book takes place. She, she undergoes this change from, from loving the Nazi revolution to, to feeling she should ally herself
1: with Soviet intelligence and provide information to them against the Nazis. By the way, what was our relationship with the Soviet Union in 1933?
0: At that point, we had not yet, at the start of 1933, we had not yet recognized uh, the Soviet Union officially. Um, recognition um, followed soon after that. Um, uh, we weren't exactly, um, we weren't opponents. We weren't necessarily the best of friends. It was a fairly status quo kind of, kind of relationship. So Martha. Um, Martha con- continued her alliance with Soviet intelligence, as best anybody can tell. She tended to be um, more talk than action. At least that's, that's my, my appraisal. And then when, um, when the commie hunters started heating up their, their activities in Congress, uh, they, um, they called her to, to testify. And she and her husband, um, a husband she married um, soon after her arrival back in America, Alfred Stern not one of the characters she knew in Berlin. Um, they fled to Mexico and then uh, ultimately wound up in Prague, leading, incidentally, a very capitalist lifestyle with a brand-new Mercedes and a big house and so forth, but, but essentially um, self-exiled from America and, uh, and uh, eventually realizing that, that they eventually became very disillusioned with communism but were stuck there in Prague. But they were agents. You know how do you define agent? They, they um, both Alfred Stern, her husband, and yeah. Mark. Yeah, they had uh, they had a, an an alliance with Soviet intelligence. They um, they were managed apparently by uh, by uh, case officers with the KGB, but again, what they actually did, or 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 what kind of intelligence they provided, is 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 not at all clear whether they, they provided anything material in the way of intelligence is,
1: is, is doubtful. How old was she when she died?
0: Oh, gosh, you're taxing my recollection of my own book. But she was... Um,
1: my memory, I, I probably read it, she was as old as 90.
0: Yeah, I think she was 90. Now, she was 90. She, when did she write her memoir? She wrote that in 1939.
1: What impact did that have on... To hold I me mean, because we hadn't <clears throat> gotten in the war yet.
0: Well, that's that's what makes the the memoir actually a very interesting piece of piece of uh, piece of writing, <clears throat> because and a very very um, tricky piece of writing. Also, I should I should note, she wrote that in 1939, and it's called Through Embassy Eyes. And interestingly, in that book, she makes no reference to Boris Vinogradov, because it was 1939. Because she was afraid that if she talked about him, he would be he would be harmed, which ultimately was the case, but not because, not because of her. Well, maybe not because of her. Um, but um, only by triangulation, only by going through her papers, do you find the materials necessary to show that, oh yes, this was Boris Vinogradov who, who occupied a good chunk of, that, of, of her romantic interest in that, in that first year. Um, so anyway, so 1939 was when she did the memoir. Um, the book was banned instantly in, in, uh, in Germany. Um,
1: and I think it did actually reasonably well in America. At least it got a lot of attention. But we'll Go back to Boris for a moment. Uh, where I'm a little confused is that she ended up working with the Soviets. But didn't you point out in your book that when she made the trip to the Soviet Union, I think that was from Germany? From Germany, yeah. Uh, at his suggestion, Boris's suggestion, and right. was he still in Berlin? Boris, was, Boris
0: well Boris was still attached to Berlin, but in fact, during that trip that she takes to the Soviet Union, he was actually in, in the Soviet Union as well. But they made <clears throat> this is where it gets kind of complicated. Um, Martha had told Boris, uh, apparently, that she did not want to see him while she was in the Soviet Union because she didn't want to be influenced in her appraisal of what the Soviet Union was all about. And later, she actually writes a letter to, to Boris that gets him very annoyed when she accuses him of, she gets angry at him for not having tried to connect with her in the Soviet Union, and he, says, he says, well, you know, you didn't want to meet with me. And he also he also hints that there was another reason he didn't see her, and that's because of what he refers to as business. And it may be, it, well, it, it seems pretty clear now based on intercepts and KGB documents that have been unearthed, not by me, but by, by others. Now it seems quite clear um, that uh, the Soviet intelligence, that the, the handlers at Moscow uh, Center, wanted Boris to stay away so that they could court, so that the intelligence agency itself could court Martha and try to get her, get her allegiance.
1: But she didn't, I, I, I think I remember,
0: she didn't like what she saw. She didn't like what she saw in the Soviet Union. She found it a very drab, depressing Place, but apparently was able to overcome that at least in terms of her her ideological uh, allegiances. But yeah, she was she was
1: really um, really kind of dismayed by by what she saw and experienced. Did you ever get a sense of why she had these ideological leanings? The sense that I got and the sense that she,
0: she conveys in, in some of her writings and her papers is that it was mainly—it wasn't so much that she was in love with uh, the Soviet Union or communism, it was that she was really deeply opposed to the Nazis and the Nazi regime by the time this, this first year comes to an end. And that's what seems to have tipped her into the Soviet camp. Why she stayed in the Soviet camp, it's, it's very hard to say, but it's clear that, it's clear that she did continue
1: her allegiance. Your book has been on the New York Times top five for, what, a couple months now? I think so, yeah, yeah. Much to my relief.
0: Your relief why? I sometimes think back, and I think, I wonder to myself how I dared do a book about, uh, about the Nazis and the Third Reich. It's not like there aren't enough books out there already, you know, that it is one of the most heavily, heavily written about subjects. Um, Maybe only equaled by the Civil War, you know, and um, what made me think that I could leap in there and maybe say something new about one part of it, I don't know. But I am so relieved that 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 audiences seem to seem to get it. you know, they seem to appreciate that this is this is a different kind of of look at that era through very different perspective.
1: and um, it seems to have seems to have caught on. You know, you're one of those authors that everybody looks forward to those books to say, "We got another one of those stories." Uh, how did you know? By the way, how how well did Thunderstruck do?
0: Thunderstruck did well. I mean, it hit the New York Times bestseller lists and uh, both paper and hard. Um, didn't do as well, anywhere near as well as Devil in the White City, um, but. I mean I think it I think it did fine and, and actually I still hear from it was more of a guy book, I think. I mean I, I still hear from uh, I hear from a lot of when I take when I was taking this book around the country um on a book tour, um, I would always hear from I was very glad to hear it. I, I always have people, men typically, come up to me and say, You know, Thunderstruck was my favorite of your books. And it was, was about favorite. what? Thunderstruck was about um it was um uh two two uh two converging narratives. And a lot of people actually have, confu- have, have sort of, I think, uh, ha- have kind of criticized me for trying to do what I did in Devil in the White City with two, two disparate narratives coming together. But in fact, the Thunderstruck thing came about completely by accident. And it is, in fact, two narratives. Um, one uh, about Marconi, the inventor of wireless. The other about Holly uh, 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 Harvey Crippen, the, probably the second most famous murderer in English history, although he killed only uh, one person. And it's about how wireless led to this this amazing, to me, amazing chase across the Atlantic um, with um, the whole world watching this chase, but Crippen, the target of the chase, being completely unaware because of the miracle of wireless. All these messages were going out. The world was following the chase. He went about his business in disguise on this ship as if nothing were happening.
1: Now you'd have Twitter, so. <laughs> you'd have
0: Twitter, yeah, exactly. You
1: live in Seattle, married to a doctor. She's still yes. practicing? Still
0: practicing, yeah. She, she is a, she's a neonatologist, intensive care for newborn babies, and she sort of runs a, a little empire there in, in Seattle. you have three daughters? Three daughters. Where are maybe. they? They've become very expensive daughters. One is a uh, two. One has just finished, uh, finished uh, college and is now in graduate school, actually here now in Washington. Another is at the University of Chicago, interestingly, um, living not far from where Dodd lived uh, when he was there. And then uh, the third is uh, going through pre-college angst um, with SATs and ACTs, and she's a junior in, in high school. Let's go through the quick biography. Uh, You were born where? I was born, uh, as was half the world, in Brooklyn, New York. Went to college where? Went to college, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And you
1: got, did you get a master's degree?
0: Not there. Um, I took a year off. Um, I was just going to work for a while in publishing, and, and my goal was to save enough money to travel around the world, and travel actually just around Europe. And then I made the mistake of seeing all the president's men. And uh, decided I had to go to journalism school and went to Columbia, which is where I got my master's. And how many different newspapers? first newspaper was a terrific uh, experience, the Bucks County Courier Times in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia. Got extremely lucky, went to the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, initially to the bureau that was based in Philadelphia. There's no longer a bureau there, but that was the biggest break of my, my career. That was a fantastic, fantastic thing for me. And then uh, after that, um, after that um, kind of, you know, I got married and did some freelance stuff for a while. Um, went back to the journal for a while, worked for Time Magazine for a bit. Um, but mostly during that period was writing longer and longer things and eventually the natural transition to, to books.
1: One of the threads in your book is about the German hatred for the Jews and that's obviously been written about many, many times. What did, you, what did you decide after reading all that you read? What was their hatred based on? What was their hatred based on? You know,
0: I don't know. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. I don't think anybody can ever really, can really understand what, what drives somebody to hate a particular, a particular race. What I was startled by, though, and, 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 and intrigued by is a thesis um, put forward by, by Sir Ian Kirshaw about, uh, about anti-Semitism in Germany. And it is his contention that, that for the average German, the question of anti-Semitism, the Jewish question, the Jewish problem, whatever you want to refer to it as, was very much an abstract thing, that for the average German, the German in the countryside. Um, it, it was just. It, it was not really hatred of Jews was not something that was really high on their on their on their platform, because there were relatively few Jews in Germany. There were very few Jews in Germany, and most of these Jews um, most lived in the big cities, in Berlin, and Munich, and so forth. So the average German, the average guy in a small town Germany had very little contact with Jews. So any kind of anti-Semitic attitude was very much an abstract. That was not the case, as, as Kirchhoff points out, among members of the Nazi party, among the stormtroopers, the self-selecting group who loathed Jews, for whom anti-Semitism, for whom hatred of Jews was one of the key reasons to, to, to be in this movement. this movement. Do,
1: do any sense of what um was it a device for them to get everybody all stirred up? If there weren't that many, it was in the a device.
0: It seemed to be a device, um, uh, but again, Kirshaw's thesis is, is so interesting because it suggests that it, it suggests that if it were a device, it had limited impact in terms of the broad German population, but a lot of power in terms of those who were already thinking in those directions among the stormtroopers and and, and so forth.
1: You did something that you don't often see in a book, and that is you quoted directly Sir Ian Kershaw. I don't know. I remember three or four times in there. I mean, most times it's in a footnote or back in the back. Right, right. Why did you do that? And and tell us a little more about him. Yeah, you know, I did that because he
0: is the man. You know, he is, he is, he is, I, I would argue, of course now other scholars will condemn me for this, but I would argue he is the the Hitler scholar. And when you have someone... Someone like that, I think you need to, to acknowledge as clearly and upfront as you can. And because also some of the things that he found are just so fascinating. You know, I mean, in one of his books, he, 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 uh, he, he, he notes that Hitler's favorite movie
1: was King Kong. You know, that's lovely stuff. That's the kind of little detail that I just love. We are almost out of time, but I have to ask you about this uh, fascination you have with little statues the little things you put in hotel rooms. Are you referring to the windowsill wars? I am, yes. Where in the world did that come from? <laughs> Do you
0: from? know? Uh, yes, I see one of them right there. <laughs> yes, this is after the wars are over, by the way, when the characters have dispersed. And the, 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 These little characters, by the way, come from, uh, from Red Rose uh, tea boxes. Those of you out there who drink Red Rose tea will know exactly what I'm talking about. And one day after, this is what happens when you, when you start a website, you know, One day I was just, this is after Christmas, and I'd gotten a new windowsill toy. And I started thinking to myself, you know, what if this new windowsill toy, I have a lot of these things on my windowsill, you know, from Nunzillas to, to wind up things and serpent pens and so forth. So what if the addition of this character to this windowsill caused a conflict that led to a battle among all the toys in the house? (laughs) <laughs> so I just decided to follow that thread in installments on my website. And you know what? It kind of went viral among my, uh, my daughter daughters and their friends. And that became sort of, for me, almost like, almost like doing a cartoon for me. It was really a
1: delightful kind of break. And anybody that wants to get into all this can go to com. Right, right. Before we close down, in The Garden of Beasts comes from what? What's that title for? The title. Um, this book, the title had to be that because
0: so much of the action in the book takes place around the, the main park in Berlin. It, it, there, there is still a park there today. It's very different, um, obviously, because the park was leveled by the Russian assault in 1945. But it's the Tiergarten, which is, in literal translation, the Garden of Beasts. And all the action in the book takes place in this, this pretty
1: narrowly, narrowly defined arc around the edge of the park. Um, final question, of all the characters you wrote about besides Martha and all that, which character, which German character would you want to know more about just because of what you learned?
0: Diels, Rudolf Diels, the, uh, the first chief of the Gestapo. I, I find myself just absolutely fascinated by him and fascinated by the fact that, that, that he survived the war and afterwards testified on behalf of the prosecution against the war criminals of, of the era.
1: Eric Larson, we thank you for your time. Thank you thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A podcast. We'll spend the next several weeks dipping into our archives,
0: sharing some of our best episodes. And Q&A will be back in January with new episodes. So be sure to follow this feed so you never miss an episode.